A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'd especially like to welcome those of you checking it out for the first time or recent uh, discoverers of this program. Look, it's nothing special. Okay, I don't have any advanced degrees. I'm I'm not good looking. I'm not rich. I'm really not even smart. So why am I telling you all my faults? I don't know. I kind of lost track of where I was going with that. Nonetheless, I'm someone who very much values truth. I want to live with truth. I want to live in reality. And I'm reaching out to anybody who shares that common goal and just offering what I can on a daily basis, you know, the best information that I can find that's credible, that's principled, and most of all, not steeped in partisan politics. I know it's everywhere. I know there was a big debate last night, as well as uh, I think Tucker Carlson was interviewing uh, former President Trump. I didn't watch either one of them. And it's it's not because, you know, I'm just that contrarian hipster who, you know, (laughs) whatever everybody's doing, I do the exact opposite. I seriously had better things to do. I I did peek in on Twitter from time to time and make sure, you know, there wasn't anything, you know, really ground shaking going on. But I had other things to to tend to. And that's honestly how I try to live my life. Aware of politics, but, you know, I, I could be giving a lot more awareness to it. I choose not to. So out of, you know, 100% awareness versus, you know, how much I give politics... I'm probably leaning towards, I probably give it about 10% of my attention. I'm trying to wean myself down to maybe where 95% of my attention is on other things and 5% is on politics. Mainly I do that just so I don't get marinated in that that uh, angst and, you know, the division and tribalism that seems to come from it. Now, I'm not condemning you if you are a political junkie. Lord knows I was for many, many years. I went through my red meat throwing phase a long time ago. But I would much rather try to impact the world in some way other than persuading them, you know, hurrah for this team or hurrah for that team. I'm much more coming at this from the idea that hurrah for you and your individual greatness. Wherever you happen to be standing, whatever your status in life, whatever your station in life, I believe you were born to make a difference. I think I was born to make a difference too. And whether that's a a big or small difference, that's really dependent upon us and how seriously we take the idea that there's something that I can do or that, that I should be doing. Basically, this is the assignment the universe gave me, you know, when I was created. And I think you should go after it with all your heart. All right, so that's in a nutshell where I'm coming from. Now, one of the hardest parts about recognizing how propagandized our world has become is the sense of isolation that comes with that recognition. You know what I'm talking about, right? You start to notice things and other people are like, that's just conspiracy theory. And they will marginalize you sometimes gleefully just because, you know, you're out there noticing things you're not supposed to notice. Got a great commentary here from Caitlin Johnstone. It's titled, In a World Ruled by Propaganda, a Sane Worldview Will Necessarily Be a Fringe Worldview. So that isolation, 
yeah, that's kind of kind of part of the deal, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Caitlin Johnstone says, in reality, the assumption that the truth exists anywhere in either of the two mainstream political viewpoints promoted by managers of the Western Empire is an example of the bandwagon effect, which describes the cognitive bias in which humans tend to take on beliefs, behaviors, styles, and attitudes solely because that's what other people are doing. Now, she says, one of the worst mistakes you can make when formulating your understanding of the world is to begin with the assumption that the truest, most accurate position must lie somewhere near the center of the two major political perspectives you see laid out all around you. She says it's a mistake not only because assuming the center position must be the best one is a type of fallacious reasoning known as the middle ground theory. If, for example, the the correct position between drink a gallon of bleach daily for good health and drink zero bleach daily for good health is not to drink a half gallon of bleach daily for good health. She says it's also a mistake because the entire framing arises from a situation that's been artificially engineered by the powerful. Caitlin says it's a well-documented fact that the rich and powerful pour vast fortunes into manipulating the political and media landscape in ways that serve their interests. Their control over the news media and Silicon Valley tech platforms is used to set the agenda and to influence public perception by determining what issues will receive attention and which won't in ways that preserve the political status quo that they've built their empire upon, thereby shrinking the Overton window of acceptable debate down to a very narrow spectrum whose outcomes can't threaten their interests in any way. I'd say she's right on the money with that assessment, by the way. She says, we just discussed this dynamic with regard to U.S. aggressions against Russia and China. The Overton window is being narrowed to to a debate between which U.S. enemy should be the target of the most imperial aggressions, with voices who advocate detente from both countries finding no platform in mainstream politics or in media. This is what Noam Chomsky was talking about when he said the smart way to keep people passive and obedient is is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. Right? We get all the appearance that, oh, look at this, we're fiercely debating, but yeah, within that very narrow little area. Caitlin says, people assume there must be truth in the mainstream worldview because so many others are invested in the mainstream worldview. When really the only reason that the worldview is mainstream in the first place is because so much wealth and influence has gone into making it mainstream. In reality, she says the assumption that the truth exists anywhere in either of the two mainstream political viewpoints promoted by managers of the Western Empire, that's an example of the bandwagon effect, which describes the cognitive bias that humans take, in which humans tend to take on beliefs, behaviors, styles, and attitudes solely because that's what the people around them are doing. Now, she actually points out that this bias would have had evolutionary advantages early on in our development as a species. Back when our evolutionary ancestors were prey for prehistoric carnivores, it was a survival advantage to start running for your life if you saw other members of your tribe running, even if you didn't personally see what they were running from. As primates whose survival depended on social cohesion, being rejected by the tribe would mean almost certain death by predation or starvation, 
So it was necessary to conform in whatever ways prevented that rejection from happening. But she reminds us we don't live in prehistoric times anymore. We live in a civilization with a highly complex information environment that is continually being manipulated away from truth and accuracy and toward the advantage of powerful people who rule over us. Listen to this point. If you go along with the herd, you'll be deceived. That's some straight-up truth right there. She says, in truth, the so-called centrists or moderates of our world really are violent extremists because they support the most murderous, tyrannical power structures on the planet. And they're only regarded as moderate because they sit in the mid-range of a completely artificially created spectrum. A perspective that's actually sane will be about as far away from their perspective as you can get. Now, because the majority of people have been duped by propaganda into espousing mainstream political perspectives, those with an accurate read on things will necessarily be a small fringe minority until that dynamic changes. So as long as your entire civilization is structured around deceit-based perspectives which serve the powerful, going along with the crowd will prevent you from forming a truth-based perspective that serves human interests. So she says you'll have to get comfortable rejecting mainstream orthodoxies, dismissing mainstream media, shunning mainstream politics, because those things are all inseparably interwoven with the matrix of deceit by which our rulers have pulled the blindfold over the civilization. This won't be a sign that you're out of touch or a kooky crackpot or some snobby hipster who rejects all things mainstream out of a pathological need to be different. It will be a sign that you are seeing things clearly. Now, this can set you apart from your tribe at times. As Terence McKenna said, the cost of sanity in this society is a certain level of alienation. But Caitlin Johnstone says, we can still find each other online, so we're never really alone. More importantly, she says, the cost is definitely worth it. The sincere pursuit of a truth-based perspective is ultimately the surest path, not only toward a healthy society, but toward lasting happiness as an individual as well. I love it. She has such a gift of clarity. By the way, this doesn't mean that uh, Caitlin and I are taking long walks on the beach, you know, hand in hand ideologically. There's a lot of stuff that, uh, that she believes that I don't. But I think she's one of the best truth speakers out there. So I'll take what works. I'll dismiss what doesn't. But this, this viewpoint, I think she is right on the money. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to let you know I have a website where I publish daily show notes every day that I do this show. Why would that be of interest? Well, let's just say that you hear about uh, an article or you hear a guest on this program and you think, yeah, I'd like to know a little bit more. That's where you'll find the information. Just go to thebrianhideshow.com, click on show notes, you'll find show notes for, again, every single day that I do the show. Even a few days where I've had laryngitis or something like that. I'll still publish show notes just because there's a lot of good information out there. And I have, you know, no expectation. Now you're going to agree with all this, right? Hey, what you do with that information, that's up to you. I'm just trying to put it out there so, you know, you have some kind of a, an alternative to uh, all the mainstream blather 
you know, coming at you 24-7. So I'm going to take a slightly different direction here. This is actually one I didn't even think that I would be taking, but I want to talk about country music. I've kind of a mixed, well, I have, the, I have a, a, a very, I have a lot of mixed feelings on, on country music. My very first full-time radio gig was at a country station. And this was back in the heyday of country. This would have been summer of 1985. And man, I'll tell you, George Strait was uh, just an up-and-coming artist. And you had the Statler Brothers and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and Charlie Daniels. But, uh, you know, I also have worked at, at country formats in the, the years since then. And I'm not sure that I really like a lot of what's gone on. Bro country to me is, is like bubblegum pop you know, was to, to top 40 music. This kind of leaves me going, Bleh. and now there's, there's this new genre coming out, country rap. Yeah. Trashy cowgirls with filthy mouths. And, you know, I don't know. You know, I mean, look, there's, there's obviously a, there's, there's a market out there for it, but I found this article from James Carafano. This was on intellectualtakeout.org. How country music speaks for everyday Americans. And it's a take worth considering. He says, Taylor Swift may be the hottest ticket this summer, but her listeners don't share her country roots. That space has been captured by a series of anthems singing the blue-collar blues, songs that are a lot closer to and a lot more correct about what's bugging everyday Americans. So American music, he says, has always been a, uh, an echo chamber for popular culture. The jazz age was a rebellious response to the highbrow Victorian gilded age. Rock and roll was the rallying cry of baby boomers. Then, of course, interspersed with the angst of uh, interspersed rather with the angst of American protests were languid spans of crass consumerism, music for people who didn't care about paying their bills, feeding their kids, or protecting their freedom. So, when we aren't worried about making ends meet, Americans love pop music made by performers as diverse as Perry Como, Bobby Darin, Barry Manilow, and yeah, Taylor Swift. But Take note, says James Carafano, when listeners switch from cotton candy tunes to meat and potatoes music, pay attention. That's a sign America is changing. Now, country music has long been a place for spawning outlaws and rebels from Elvis Presley on. To be fair, even the Dixie Chicks, now just the Chicks, were following that in that tradition in their protests against the Iraq War, with their song Not Ready to Back Down in 2006. Sure, they generated lots of controversy, including the mass destruction of their CDs and, be, and being dropped by country music stations. But hey, that's what protest movements are all about. So it's not too much of a surprise that a new generation of protest songs, the heirs apparent to Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction in 1965, sound nothing like a Taylor Swift pop ballad about her most recent boyfriend, and that they sound an awful lot like country music. Now, that's not to say that Nashville has not gone as woke as the rest of the entertainment industry. In 2020, country icon Dolly Parton quickly backtracked from proclaiming all lives matter when she realized she had offended the radical left, quickly embracing Black Lives Matter. Folk Ally, a popular online radio station that features country, folk, and Americana music, felt compelled to celebrate Pride Month by featuring LGBTQ artists. Still, despite the peer, political, and commercial pressure to go with the flow, there are deep roots in country music that just won't let go of that connection to common people. 
In 2021, when Blake Shelton got attacked for penning a song called Minimum Wage, he basically told his critics to buzz off. He called the backlash over the lyrics absolutely ridiculous. In one interview, and he also said the song uh, resonated with him because it reminded him of the times he struggled to make ends meet early in his career. Now, the watershed moment in the next big American musical protest moment could well be Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town, which was decried by the left as promoting racism and gun violence. Even the National Review, the conservative National Review, went after Aldean in an article proclaiming, we need songs about virtue, not violence. Well, all this criticism kind of misses the bigger point. Aldean wrote an anti-woke anthem, not encouraging some Americans to go after others, but to reassure them it's okay to believe in what they want to, and that they should not have to abandon their values, their communities, or their families to be normal and acceptable. How do we know Aldean is on to something? Because despite withering criticism from our cultural overlords in days, if not hours, his video was dropped by CMT, yet still attracted millions of views online. Meanwhile, if you drop by Aldean's Honky Tonk in Nashville, you'll find it just as packed as every other bar on Broadway. And that was only the beginning. Earlier this month, an unknown singer-songwriter from Virginia, Oliver Anthony, released a blue-collar anthem, Rich Men North of Richmond, that overtook Aldean on iTunes. Except that this is not the last of songs that defend not liking crime, and loving families, and two genders, secure borders, gas-powered cars, and water heaters, and paychecks that can pay the bills. Because those are the things that a lot of Americans really love and really believe are under siege. And when musicians give them voice, they will listen. I thought that was an interesting take. And I have to admit, you know, that I was a little skeptical, but but I believe that uh, James Carafano is onto something here. I think there is a shift that's taking place. And and it's happening on a couple of different levels. He talks about the cultural overlords. Well, Jason Aldean, because we have taken offense, we being the royal we of the, the woke left, you know, we're going to have to pull your video. Try that in a small town from country music television. And yet people still went out of their way to support Jason Aldean. I think, I mean, we're seeing similar backlash against Oliver Anthony. Same kind of thing. This guy's a plant. This guy's he's punching down. He's, he's just railing against, you know, people he doesn't know anything about. Now he's, he's touching on truth, just like Jason Aldean was touching on truth. And it makes me happy to see that there are people who are willing to stand up for what they believe in. Isn't it, isn't it so interesting, though, that the narrative always seems to bend toward, well, you can't stand up for what you believe in without uh, threatening violence. Sorry to sound like Sylvester the cat there, but that's, that's how the left perceives it. And I have to wonder, why is that? Why do they ascribe, you know, intentions of violence to anybody who says, you know, no? Or maybe, hell no, that's not for me and that's not for my kid. Get out of here with your, you know, agenda. I think it may have something to do with the fact that we got to see, roughly three summers ago, what the left will do when it's not getting its way, or when it feels like it's not getting, you know, the, the acceptance or the attention that it believes it deserves. And yes, I do believe violence was on the menu, 
Quite a number of cities experienced a lot of violence. Looting, burning, breaking, threatening, beatings, shootings, stabbings. So I guess my point here is just simply this. You're going to be made out to be some kind of a, uh, you know, an antisocial monster. Simply by standing up for your beliefs and saying, no, I'm not going to bend the knee. I'm not going to raise the fist and chant in unison with, with the crowd that supposedly is fighting fascism by forcing everybody to chant with them and march with them. How ironic. But you're definitely not alone. And you're not wrong in standing for your principles. And if you look around you, really look around. You're not as out there as you're being led to believe you are. So go ahead. Revel in wrong think. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to the sponsors who helped to make this program possible. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, ClimbingUpward.com, as well as QuiltAndSew.com. You can check them out by going to my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Wow, that's a lot of, lot of uh, web addresses there, but uh, they're all in one convenient place for you. So I think most people would agree that if an idea is so good it has to be compulsory, it's probably not that good of an idea. Having said that, uh, I've got a great article here from Kerry McDonald about compulsory schooling laws have got to go. And, and one of the things that really kind of keyed me off to this, I, I, I was looking at a headline the other day. This is from a very small school district in my home state of Idaho. Up in northern Idaho, the West, Boundary, uh, West Bonner County School District is, uh, is going through some pretty tough times. And they have a new superintendent. Um, he has, I think, like four out of five of the credential things necessary for him to take over that position. But they need a provisional certification from the state school board in order to, uh, to, for him to be the school superintendent, the, the district superintendent. And the, the opposition within the education bureaucracy is so telling because this, this guy is a conservative and so they, they don't have someone who's ideologically pure and, and the, the roadblocks that are being thrown at him. And, and I just, this is a headline from Idaho Education News. Superintendent Brandon Durst compelled by school board trustees to file for an emergency provisional certificate. It's almost like they're just relishing. We, we compelled him. We forced him to apply for his emergency provisional certificate. But then again, I think, well, you know, what do you expect? Bureaucrats in a compulsory system being celebrated by a news organ for compelling an administrator whose ideological purity is in question to jump through their bureaucratic hoops for their approval. I don't think it's a very flattering look, but that's just me. Here's what Carrie McDonald has to say about compulsory school laws. She says, when Massachusetts passed the nation's first compulsory school attendance law back in 1852... Parents were mandated to send their children to school under a threat of force. That's a legal threat of force. And today that threat remains stronger than ever. Prior to that, 
and those that followed prior to that law and those that followed in all other U.S. states over the subsequent decades, cities and towns were compelled to provide schooling for those who wanted it. But parents were under no obligation to use those schools. In fact, many didn't, choosing instead to send their children to private schools, church or charity schools, dame schools in their neighbor's kitchen, apprenticeships for older children or teens, or they homeschooled. But starting in the mid-19th century, Massachusetts Board of Education Secretary Horace Mann and other education reformers who were captivated by the Prussian schooling system, that's Germany, and its embrace of compulsion and conformity, where everyone is trained to know their place and know their position in society, convinced the legislatures to widen compulsion from municipalities to moms and dads. Now, there was a very broad and open anti-immigrant sentiment, especially in mid-19th century Boston, that paved the way for compulsory schooling statutes in order to inculcate dominant Anglo-Saxon Protestant customs in newly arrived, predominantly Irish Catholic immigrants. The The Massachusetts State Legislature mourned, Those now pouring in upon us in masses of thousands upon thousands are wholly of another kind in morals and intellect. This is regarding the new Boston immigrants two years before passing its pioneering compulsory attendance law. Horace Mann, who homeschooled his own three children while working to mandate schooling for others, explained that strong parental bonds are obstacles to state education. He wrote in his fourth lecture on education in 1840, quote, Nature supplies a perennial force, unexhausted, inexhaustible, reappearing whenever and wherever the parental relation exists. We then who are engaged in the sacred cause of education are entitled to look upon all parents as having given hostages to our cause. Wow. He actually said that out loud. Now, Kerry notes, since their inception, compulsory school attendance laws have been used to criminalize parents, particularly low-income parents, and parents from marginalized groups like immigrants and racial and ethnic minorities. In the wake of 19th century compulsory schooling laws, Catholic parents began sending their children to parochial schools to avoid the overtly Protestant teachings and texts of the purportedly secular public schools. Disturbed by parents opting out of public schools, Oregon banned attendance at private and parochial schools in the early 20th century. That action ultimately led to the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision, Pierce v. Society of Sisters, 1925, that famously proclaimed the child is not the mere creature of the state. Compulsory school attendance laws continue to terrorize parents and weaken families. Kerry says just last week, the Missouri Supreme Court upheld a state law that allows the parents of children who regularly miss school to be jailed. The case focused on two single, uh, two single mothers in Missouri who were given jail sentences when their children, who were in kindergarten and first grade, were each absent from school for roughly 15 days during the 2021-2022 academic year. Now, she says, we may see this criminalization of parents accelerate in the coming months as states and school districts try to find the allegedly missing children who've left school districts since the pandemic response began in 2020. And again, it's likely to be the low-income parents and those from historically marginalized groups who will be targeted for truancy. Now, compulsory schooling is incompatible with freedom, as Thomas Jefferson himself recognized. While promoting broad educational offerings, free to the poor, and noting that a society could not be both free and ignorant, 
Jefferson opposed forced education. He wrote in 1817, It is better to tolerate the rare instance of a parent refusing to let his child be educated than to shock the common feelings and ideas by the forcible asportation and education of the infant against the will of the father. So Carey says, instead of criminalizing parents whose children miss school, sometimes for heartbreaking reasons such as bullying, we should seek instead to eliminate compulsory schooling statutes and free families from government's coercive clutches. In the absence of these laws, a robust, diverse, and decentralized education ecosystem would emerge that would be grounded in consent over coercion and defined by variety over monopoly. Now, some states, such as West Virginia, have taken initial steps to loosen compulsory school attendance laws by widening exemptions. More state policymakers should follow suit, or better yet, get rid of these cruel laws altogether. Now, this, is, this can be kind of a touchy subject. My wife is a public school teacher. We have, by the way, we've run the gamut with our kids. We have homeschooled them. We have private schooled them. We have charter schooled them. And my last two kids at home are currently students in, in public school. And my wife is a public school teacher. So, I've seen the gamut. And if, if I have to be very honest, I'm not a fan of government-run school systems. I think that, you know, we hear about, well, separation of, uh, of church and state. You know, that's, that's the imperative. I think separation of school and state would actually be a far better way to go. And yet, the idea that these truancy laws, you know, they force parents. You will send your child here, or you have to obtain some kind of a waiver or some kind of permission slip from the state. Okay, I'm going to educate my kid in some alternate scenario. But the state still claims that right to come after you legally if your kid is not in school. I have a good friend in southern Utah. He and uh, I think his, his son was having some health problems, but also they were doing a fair amount of traveling as a family. Now, his kid is like an honor society student. He's not uh, a slouch. It's not like, yeah, we were just neglecting him educationally. But uh, when they reached a threshold of, and I don't know how many days it was, 15 or whatever, where, you know, this kid had missed, you know, that many days of school, he starts getting vaguely threatening and then sometimes overtly threatening letters from the school district. Well, of course, there will be legal uh, complications and we'll have to take this to the next level if we don't uh, see your student back here and making up these days. And, you know, people say, well, is it really out of concern for getting the kid educated? And, you know, I want to believe that's the case. But I also have to acknowledge that uh, under Utah law, the funding for the schools depends in large part by how many warm bodies are sitting in seats inside that classroom. So even if they have to make up the uh, missed days by coming in on a Saturday or, you know, doing the equivalent of detention, I wonder sometimes if it isn't just more rooted in, well, we had warm bodies sitting in the seats for this many days. And that's how we qualify to maintain our funding. All I know is this. Uh, the, the push for school choice is growing. And I think rightly so. But the push against it is also growing with the you know claims, well, it takes money away from our struggling public schools. I just want to see the coercive part taken out of this entirely. Let there be variety. Let there be choice. Let's break the monopoly and see where people go. I'm confident the consumers will choose what best serves them and their kids. 
They're not going to neglect them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. It's the final segment of the show, including our article of the day, which I will share in just a few moments. I'm going to start off, though, with one from J.B. Shirk. He's becoming one of my favorite writers from AmericanThinker.com. And uh, he, he has an article here about saving lives, saving the world. I thought this was a particularly on-target commentary. I don't know if you saw the news story, but he references the 33-year-old British nurse recently convicted of murdering seven fragile babies and attempting to kill at least six others. For her campaign of child murder, she's been given a life sentence with no possibility of parole. All of her victims had been born with medical complications and were just a few hours to a day, a few days old. So she injected air into their bloodstreams and added poisons to their intravenous feeds. During her murder spree, she consciously targeted the extremely vulnerable. Her ordinary appearance, combined with her self-image as a conscientious, hard-working, knowledgeable nurse, provides another stark reminder of the prevalence in this world of what Hannah Arendt called the banality of evil. Now, J.B. Shirk says, Crimes like this affect me. I feel the same revulsion when I see what remains after bloody massacres carried out by child soldiers in parts of Africa or by gangs of teenagers on America's city streets. The carnage is always so reckless and perfunctory, as if such consequential damage, damage has no consequence at all. He says this soul-destroying idea that life does not matter, that murder is as insignificant as doing laundry, is the kind of evil that sends shivers down my spine. And he says it's also the kind of evil that totalitarian regimes mass-produce in faithless societies. Now he says, I'm not going to pretend to know what form of wickedness so contorted that British nurse's heart that she could maliciously betray her most sacred professional duties. But he says it's difficult not to wonder whether a Western culture that celebrates abortion and euthanasia as exemplars of freedom might have had something to do with the blight on her soul. When ordinary people are force-fed a media diet in which shouting your abortion is glorified as female empowerment and suicide is condoned as a moral choice, they lose sight of the precious sanctity of every life. He says, I feel like screaming, life matters. Protect it. Cherish it. Fight for every breath you've got. These temporary lives we have are not ours alone. They were not given to us, given to us rather by an all-knowing political state. They were given to us by our all-knowing God. And to treat life so flippantly as to believe it means nothing when we choose to destroy it must surely sadden and offend our Creator in ways we cannot comprehend. To reach out and save someone, now that is a blessing for both the life being saved and the life doing the saving. In every act that helps make it possible for another to live, we fill our lives with life too. Imagine if Western governments used the power of their media platforms to promote that truth. Yet life is not something that governments today even pretend to protect. The world is suffering from overpopulation, we're constantly told. And for the ruling elite, life is now a threat. Our ruling class would rather encourage ordinary people to see their lives as meaningless than recognize that the celebration of life is what gives this world meaning. 
Without meaning, people are reduced to things that can be carelessly tossed away. It's why totalitarian regimes see that see people as uh, mere that see people as mere bricks under the state's control are so quick to resort to mass executions, and why the resulting carnage is just as reckless and perfunctory as that performed by Africa's child armies. When life is seen as banal, the banality of evil is never far behind. Now, he doesn't just identify the problem here. He also offers a solution. What are we to do about this ongoing threat to humanity? J.B. Shirk says we must return to God, of course. We must return to a culture that remembers how to celebrate life. We must reach out to others and give them purpose, and in doing so, save those who are already slipping away. The truth of the matter is that politics and elections will never accomplish what you are already capable of accomplishing this very day. Now, he anticipates people saying, Oh, that's impossible. Western culture is too rotten. People are too far gone. Godless Marxist globalism is here for good. But he says, Really? I look around today and I see people desperate, lost, and afraid. The World Economic Forum derisively smiles and promises that soon everyone will own nothing and be happy. But people have never been less happy. Every day that globalism advances, ordinary human beings feel worse. Past generations that endured famine and war had more happiness in their lives. Why is that? Because despite their hardships, they had meaning in their lives. He says, our world today is filled with extremely vulnerable who've been led to believe that they serve no purpose. Western governments treat them as things to be controlled rather than as people who live consequential lives. They're yearning for something greater both within themselves and outside in the world that's worthy of their work. They are seeking their calling. And he says, this isn't the time to inject air or poisons into their bloodstreams while they're weak. This is the time to reach out and give them strength. People are clamoring for this kind of fire in their souls. They seek a sense of restoration that's been absent for generations. They crave forgiveness and need redemption. This is the kind of revolution that no government can thwart because it asserts a truth governments now reject, and that is, your life is valuable and worth saving. He says, if you divide the world into two, wherein one side finds life meaningless and the other finds life sacred, I know with certainty which side wins in the end. Real happiness can only be found by those committed to living. Without the capacity for authentic joy, no civilization can survive. To defend life and to save others is to save yourself. Why is that true? Because saving one life at a time guarantees that the side which sees life as a blessing will keep growing. Contrary to what you might have been taught in school, moral purpose is the epitome of survival of the fittest. So he says, seek God's guidance, defend life, and find happiness. That's a far more serious promise than the horse pucky that Klaus Schwab and the WEF are slinging around. Now he says, when I was young, I knew everything. It wasn't until I started learning that I realized how little I knew. But J.B. says, the older I get, the more certain I've become that I'll be buried with more questions than answers. Yet I know this, there is no hole in our lives too big for God to fill. That makes sense, doesn't it? God created the world and everything in it. There's no problem weighing us down that he has not also afforded us the means of lifting from our shoulders. He says, I've learned far more from those times when I've been knocked down onto the mat than those times I remained standing. Because every difficult experience has forced me to figure out how to get back up and find my balance. 
Now, this world today, he says, thinks it knows everything. Self-described experts tell us the science is settled in such rubbish all the time. And because of their cocky self-certainty, this world is about to get knocked flat on its back. There will be a lot of people who stay down and choose never to get back up. And there will be people who perhaps truly see clearly for the first time in their lives. They will fight to go on because they find meaning in their lives. That meaning will drive them forward no matter the difficulty. These are the people who will steady our turbulent world, aid the suffering, and empower the weak. They will succeed. Life, liberty, property, and happiness under God's merciful protection. There is nothing so resilient or powerful as those who believe. There is nothing so menacing to the banality of evil as those who cherish and celebrate life. Isn't that powerful? I hope that speaks to you or at least speaks to your heart the way that it does to mine. I'll have a link to J.B. Shirk's essay in today's show notes. This is for August 24th, 2023. One final note, and this is uh, the article of the day. I would like you to check out this article by Edward Ring that uh, is a very thought-provoking commentary on Christians and the globalist agenda. I think it's a nice follow-up to J.B. Shirk's article. When Christians believe something is wrong, they will take action to change it. And as you have probably guessed, there are some things that uh, are are becoming not just uh, acceptable in the world, but actually enforced by the world, which are very objectionable to Christians. And I know that we've all, those of us who are, you know, believers in, in Christ, we, we find ourselves asking, what can I do? Do we, uh, do we want to live in technopens like human livestock in order to appe- appease Gaia? No. And we don't want digital money that the government can track and turn off at will. We want to be free. Why? Because we believe that freedom, agency, is the greatest gift that God can give us. And what makes Christians particularly dangerous is that, uh, as, as Edward Ring points out, we believe in an afterlife. We believe that uh, this, is, this world is just a preliminary to what really matters and what, what comes next. So to threaten us with taking away all of our possessions or even taking away our lives, it doesn't hold quite the, uh, the, the threat that those who reject you know, belief in God think it holds. This is why a person who is uh, a very solid conviction that God is real and that truth is truth and light is light is very formidable. They're tough to intimidate. This is The Brian Hyde Show.